0: On May 5th of this year, a very strange thing happened. For the first time in memory, the Pharmaceutical Benefit Managers, or PBMs, who act as the go-between for patients, insurers, and the biopharmaceutical industry, were given a good old-fashioned grilling in the U.S. Senate. This will come as no surprise to Gary Branning. Gary is a professor at Rutgers Graduate School of Business and Pharmaceutical Management and President of MMR a healthcare consulting company that specializes in the reimbursement of medicines in the U.S. healthcare system. With 30 plus years experience and expertise in healthcare, Gary is known for his innovative approaches to access and policy issues related to the infinite complex U.S. healthcare system and the access of new medicines. Gary, it's great to see you and great to talk to you again.
1: Always a pleasure to spend some time with you. So happy to help out.
0: I'd like to ask you a bit about MMR because this is an increasingly important and vital area, as you know, more than anyone. But yet it's quite a niche area dealing with the intricacies of the U.S. healthcare system, who pays for what and how those medicines reach patients from the industry and from the pharmaceutical creators. Why did you set up MMR? What was your motivation?
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, I worked with... uh, I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for quite a few years. And then when I left Pfizer, so that was the last pharmaceutical company that I worked for. Um, when I left Pfizer, I was in the market access area, so dealt with reimbursement. And uh, I found that not just Pfizer, but it seemed like all pharmaceutical companies really needed some expertise on how to help combat, I guess would be the right word, Um you know the payers enforcement of uh, drug policies and limiting patient medications so i started mmr mainly because i'm um, i'm a patient advocate and i think patients should have access well the question is we have access many patients have access but I like to call it affordable access to medications. And that's the problem that we're having in the U.S. right now is that not all medications are affordable, particularly with all the innovation around rare and orphan diseases.
0: But obviously, when the U.S., congress passed the prescription drug benefit in 2004 one of the motivations for the passage of that bill was to put an incentive to move u.s industry and innovation into these niche areas i mean that was sort of the point was to create a benefit so that that could occur do you think that in many ways we're kind of a victim of our own success right now is that part of the problem
1: um i think that uh when you talk about the medicare modernization act which is the bill that you were talking about that that was implemented in 2006 giving medicare beneficiaries a drug benefit for the first time in the history so before 2006 anybody over the age of 65 had to either go to canada find drugs uh, affordable so we had a real issue with people being able to afford medicines so in the in the older population so this drug bill was fantastic To create an affordable option for people that were of medicare age what has gone wrong since then which is why it's been such an issue in congress is that in 2003 and 4 when this bill was passed the amount of specialty drug spend was less than generic drug spend in 2020 all specialty drug spend has exceeded all retail drug spend so, what we've seen is we've seen a shift in the curve and medicines because of the innovation in the pharmaceutical industry and in treating these rare and orphan diseases. You know, the average medication price of a specialty drug is around $73,000. So, that creates unaffordable options the way the benefit design was created back in for beneficiaries in 2006. So, what we had in 2006 is not what we have today in 2022 and we need a new solution.
0: Yeah. The number one selling drug back then was Lipitor and it was what, you know, 1,200, 1,400 bucks. You get a 5% out of pocket on 1,200 bucks. Okay. It's, you know, it's not insignificant. You know, it's doable. Now, all of a sudden you're looking at, you know, 5% on 70 grand. This becomes a real problem from a consumer standpoint.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about, you know, there's no out of pocket cap like we have on the You know, us with employer-sponsored benefits, we have an out-of-pocket cap. There is no out-of-pocket cap for beneficiaries. And that's part of some of the bills that have been running around in Washington right now that would cap the drug spend for beneficiaries. So at least they would know what their dollar allocation is, regardless of what drugs they would be on in any particular year.
0: Why do you think that that 5% out-of-pocket was put in? Was it the idea to keep pressure there to have skin in the game so that there would be some sort of buy-in?
1: There's been some studies that even if you give drugs away for free, it doesn't mean that people are going to take them. Right. So if they do have some skin in the game, people are more motivated to take their medicine. If you buy something, you're more obligated, you f- would feel, to use it. But the way that benefit design was created, um, particularly now in 2022, there's a lot more skin in the game because there's a 25% cost share through initial coverage, which would include the donut hole. Right. where The pharmaceutical manufacturers contribute 70%. And then after they reach a threshold, which is going to be a little shy of $4,000, they're going to reach a threshold where now they have to pay 5% for the remainder of the year till their benefit design resets. Now, without an out-of-pocket cap, that becomes an unaffordable benefit for somebody that's maybe on a fixed income.
0: Now, one of the other things that was supposed to be been put in place to control this was this idea of a pharmaceutical benefit manager, which I mentioned in the introduction. Now, they're supposed to act as sort of a middle person, a broker that sits between all these actors, theoretically, driving the best price for the consumer. Is that a pretty fair assessment of what a PBM is supposed to do?
1: Well, the PBM's claim to fame started with adjudication. Okay. So, when they first got into the industry, their job was to make sure that everybody got paid so they would take the money from those that were paying the employers insurance companies so on and so forth and they had built the systems to be able to adjudicate a claim which means a pharmacy as soon as it filled a claim they would know where they were getting their money from so it was a very very efficient system but then they got more and more into controlling medications and negotiating rebates which is another area that has created some issues for uh obviously for the price of drugs But their whole claim to fame is that they reduce the overall drug spend. But there's some misconceptions in that. It's probably why they got the grilling that you mentioned by Senate. There's some misconceptions that are related to that because of where all the money goes. So sometimes all those rebates that are provided by the pharmaceutical manufacturer don't ever impact the patient's cost. So the patients, all all of their cost share is based on the retail price of the drug. So when the rebates are given on a particular drug, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate into helping the patient at the point of sale.
0: Picking up on that, we did an analysis on HR3 and IPI, and in the course of doing that, we stumbled onto an odd data point that we've uh, had a publication in STAT about. We found that the Medicare D cost, as you mentioned, the sort of list price that the consumer is paying, the person in Medicare, was higher than the total revenue for the listed in the company's balance sheets for insulin products. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we're seeing two, you know 4 billion dollars in sales in Medicare for insulin and we're seeing 2 billion dollars on the balance sheet of the companies. We're like wait a minute, there's there's 2 billion dollars here that's vanished into an ether somewhere in the quote-unquote supply chain. What's going on there? Is this an example of part of the issue?
1: Well, that would be correct because it's about 50-50 today. So when a pharmaceutical manufacturer markets a drug, most branded drugs, it's about 50 cents on a dollar that they make. So if I give you three statistics, 50 cents, 200 billion and 80 percent, you'd be like, can you connect those numbers together, Gary, for me? I'm like, yeah, I can connect them together for you. It's 200 billion dollars that leak out of the system for branded drugs in the United States. 200 billion dollars. So the pharmaceutical manufacturers don't make that money. What they make is about 50 cents on the dollar, and 80% of it goes into rebates to those PBMs that you were mentioning, to to the insurance companies. Now, PBMs do share the rebates with their employers, which has created another issue that many people don't understand, is that the employers enjoy those rebates. So the PBMs' clients enjoy the rebates also. And it's like giving candy to a baby. They have things called rebate guarantees, Dwayne. And the way that we, rebate guarantees work is that they guarantee the employers that for every drug filled, we'll give you X number of dollars for any drug. So it doesn't matter whether they're contracted for it or not. Those rebate guarantees have to be paid out to the employers. Well, it's a competitive business and the employers will switch PBMs if the rebate guarantees don't continue to go up and up and up and up and up. So we have a system that doesn't really favor lowering drug prices it favors increasing drug prices because you have to manage the difference and you know when you think about it five six years ago it wasn't 50 50 it was like 60 40 but it keeps going down probably next year probably next year it's going to be 60 40 going the other way the pharmaceutical companies are gonna make 40 percent cents on the dollar so it's to over time there's i call it the leaky bucket you know, right. you start with this big revenue bucket at the pharmaceutical side that people think that, well, why are they making a lot of money? Well, ultimately what they make on every drug when you hear the price is about fifty cents on a dollar.
0: It's a leaky bucket and the holes keep getting bigger and bigger and you gotta pour more and more water into it, unfortunately. Yeah. Theoretically, shouldn't the PBMs then be passing those through to the end user, the person who's walking into the the pharmacy and getting their drugs as part of Medicare Part D? But in fact, it's not. It's actually going to the person who's signing the contract with the PBM. In your research, do you actually see that flowing through eventually to the end user or not? Because all the perception is that it doesn't.
1: You're you're talking about managing levers for affordability. That's what you're trying. That's the question that you're asking. So what PBMs, and, and this will sound like I'm defending them, which I am because they're a business there that, you know, they're trying to do what they can do. But um, ultimately, what they do is, for their clients, now I'm talking about their clients, not the patients themselves. Right. For their clients, they're trying to create an affordable option that creates passing back the rebates through those organizations, through those rebate guarantees. It's a contractual obligation to ultimately lower the overall drug cost for their clients. What that translates into is affordable premiums, which makes the balance of their clients Employees, right? So for or Medicare beneficiaries holding the premium dollars down. So when you think about the three different levers they have, they have premiums, deductibles, and out-of-pocket costs. So what they do is they try to manage the three. The most important to be competitive for any industry is what the initial buy is, the premium. So what happens is the premiums are shared across everyone which provides a benefit that's affordable for everyone. It's almost like passing the hat, but then those that have to use the system where they have to, have to use drugs, then they're going to face the deductibles and out-of-pocket costs, which not as many consumers are going to see those as they see the premiums. So if you're a non-user of drugs, your biggest focus on your insurance is the premium you pay. If you're a user of drug, it's your premiums, the deductibles, and your out-of-pocket costs. But the numbers funnel down based on, Everybody pays a premium, some people pay deductibles, and even fewer people pay large out-of-pocket costs. I've painted a bullseye. I work with uh, advocacy groups, too, and for our association, Pharma, I went and presented to 30 advocacy groups. Dwayne, it was kind of fun because I painted a target on me, like, why do drugs cost so much money? (laughs) When they were leaving, they were all going, PBM, PBM, PBM. But I said, but to be fair of how this whole industry works, right? you have to figure out where all the money goes. And managing the premium is the most important part for a PBM and an insurance company to stay competitive. And then the rest of the costs get pushed downstream. And when I say putting a target on me, I ask, I'll speak to an audience of 200 people sometimes, and people say, "Why do drugs cost so much money?" I'm like, "All right, let's just stop right there. How many people in this room have gone to fill a prescription that they po- thought that they took too much out of their pocket for it? Four or five people raised their hands out of 200. Right." you're probably using a specialty drug. So it really is not the average retail drug prices that are annoying people. It's the media and the politicians and everything that gets thrown into this. But there's a big emphasis on specialty drugs. Every time a specialty drug is launched on the market, there's an announcement as to what that price is. It's not the price that the pharmaceutical manufacturer receives, but it's like, holy cow, how can anybody charge that much money for a drug?
0: Yeah, and increasingly that is... In fact, the issue, it's the list price and then that 5% out of pocket, that's the problem. Is, Is that really the pain point right now then? You're right. I don't hear anyone complaining about premiums necessarily, but where, you know, particularly Medicare Part B, which does extremely well in all surveys, Gallup's done tons of work and people are extremely happy with Medicare Part B. There's no issue there. It's the Part D out of pocket cap in the donut hole that becomes a real problem. Yeah. What do you propose from a policy perspective to repair that? Since, as you point out, it's 2-3% of a room of 200 people, it's a niche population, but it's also where all the innovation is and where all the science is leading. It's where all the action is, as it were.
1: Drug spend in the United States has been relatively consistent since 1960. Yeah, 11-13%. It's been consistent, right? No more, no less every year. But what happens is the overall GDP, obviously, has gone up, so that percentage has raised the overall drug prices. But what you get down to is that every consumer's share of wallet. So you have to think in terms of share of wallet, right? Like you said, premiums, okay, that's my share of wallet. I pay that every year. I'm kind of of consistent. It goes up a little bit every year, whatever. But when you talk about paying for a drug, you know, you might be, God forbid, you were diagnosed with diabetes or something, you go to the doctor and the doctor, you pay your $10 or $20 for your office visit. And then the doctor says, you're going to need to take these four prescriptions, which is going to cost you $250 a month. Which share of your wallet hurt the most? Not the visit to the doctor. It's the share of the wallet for paying for all the drugs that you need to manage your medications, to manage your conditions.
0: So it's similar to the airline industry where they, they fight to get the lowest price for the ticket, but then you pay for baggage. Not
1: so much so because that's a, that's more of a choice, Okay. right? You don't have to go to the premium lounge. You don't have to you know upgrade your seat. You don't have to do all these other stuff. But in the healthcare industry, you probably should have insurance, which means you're gonna have to pay the premium. But then when you use it, that's the thing that people don't realize a lot of times is that you pay for what you get. So if you're paying high premiums, Well, your deductibles and your out-of-pockets are going to be lower. If you're paying low premiums, well, just the opposite. You're going to have higher deductibles and higher out-of-pocket costs. So those that don't really need to use the services of the healthcare system may buy cheaper insurance because they feel like they're not going to use it. Those that are heavier users need to figure out what's the best premiums for the out-of-pockets and the deductibles that they may be paying. It comes down to actuarial science which is a high level science, as you know, you're a bit of a mathematician as well, but it's a high level of science that is used by the insurance companies and they don't lose money. So like I said before, they mix those three things. It's the premiums, the deductibles and the out-of-pocket cost, And that's what determines the benefits that the patient has and whatever they paid for that premium is what's written in the contract when they go to use the system.
0: You mentioned the controversy around that you know, those specialty drugs, the high-end drugs, which are, you know, taking up more and more of the budget, but are also driving more and more of the innovation, obviously. A lot of the pressure around this issue is coming from the fact that we have such a huge price dispersion between the U.S., Canada, and Europe. Why do you think prices are getting so far apart between the U.S., Canada, and Europe?
1: If you do head-to-head, country-to-country, first thing you're going to find out is that over time, in the EU, prices go down. In the US, over time, prices go up. Once again, to satisfy all those rebates, which doesn't exist in those other marketplaces. So that's one piece you have to consider. The other piece you have to consider is availability. And I like to point this out to people. Everybody's like, oh, drugs are so much cheaper everywhere else. If they're available. Right. You even take some of the countries, that even the most sophisticated countries that you could probably choose, they're going to be somewhere access to about 50% less of the drugs that you have available to you in the United States. So the innovations here and the availability is here in the U S too. So when you think about these rare and orphan diseases, many times they're not even available in other countries, but they are available here
0: right now in France, for example, just to get an oncology product to market in France, it's taking 544 days after the European medicines agency approves the drug. So you're, you're pushing, you know, a year and a half, two years now for a good, Solid product that has good efficacy. You know, the UK. We did an analysis of this, and we found that sixty-five percent, seventy percent of the drugs were available in the UK, and that was the best. But it was also one of the lowest <laughs> margins yeah, UK's as well. the best. <laughs> <laughs> <Right. UK's laughs> the
1: best but it's interesting dynamic though that you had just brought up though, because in the US, let's go back to the US again. Let's take another trip back to the US. FDA approves the drug as soon as it's uh, manufactured. And distributed, it's available. Right. Some of the PBMs will have moratoriums. That's one of the things that they use. But those moratoriums are usually only for six months.
0: Right, because they want to see the efficacy and validate the the numbers before they bring it in. And also, they want to do a secondary negotiation, obviously.
1: Yeah, they also like to see how it works. I mean, some of their reasoning has to do with utilization in the real world. Because a lot of the drugs aren't approved with real-world trials. So, they're based on well-controlled, which is a key word trials that the FDA then will approve the drug, but sometimes those have limited populations. PBMs and payers, insurance companies, like to see how those drugs are going to work in a larger population before they'll cover it. So that's another, it's it's a few things, but that's
0: another reason. I'd like to pick up on that point. That's really important because one of the things we're seeing now when you talk about wanting more evidence and getting a better idea of how the quote unquote the drugs work We're seeing some pressure being put on the accelerated approval pathway, and this is a known pathway that we have with the FDA. 82% of the accelerated approval that we've analyzed over the last 20 years is uh, for orphan indications. So they're predominantly orphan. A lot of them are extremely narrow and very small, very thin populations. But one of the things that's occurred, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, decided to overrule for one of the first times that this, is, that this has actually occurred for the recent Alzheimer's treatment uh, that was developed by Biogen and, and subsequently yes. since, as we pointed out in our Senate testimony, would likely be pulled off, these drugs would likely be pulled off the market if CMS made this decision that they would require um, an evidence under coverage situation where the people would have to be enrolled in a clinical trial to uh, get coverage for the drug, which has since been pulled off the market. The impact of this decision appears to be we're bifurcating our pathway now. There's a push to no longer have the accelerated approval be a full approval. And we're starting to make reimbursement and coverage decisions, or at least there's a push there uh, from a regulatory perspective, and political perspective, as well as a lot of noise in the media that we don't consider this valid anymore. What do you think is going to be the impact since we've done this now for Alzheimer's disease? What's, what's going to happen if we continue down this pathway?
1: In the United States, there's 700 rare and orphan diseases. The pharmaceutical manufacturers have only been able to address somewhere between five and 8% of them. So there's a lot of room for the pharmaceutical industry to innovate and improve. If the accelerated pathway were to be removed or it's made more difficult, now we're going to have less solutions quicker for those people that are in need. Because you mentioned before, you know, rare and orphan diseases. So these are diseases that these patients have no solution. They're waiting for the pharmaceutical industry to innovate something that can help them with their particular condition. And uh, if this accelerated pathway and, and the way, so the FDA approved the drug, but then CMS made that determination, um, which then gives other payers the same clout to give that same determination, which then limits the population using the drug. One thing that people don't understand about the pharmaceutical industry is that it's not, it's not a wholesale cure for most things. It's mostly incremental. Right. And the learning mechanisms that are put in place by getting these drugs into the market and having people use them is advantageous to the industry for additional discovery to maybe someday have a real answer for Alzheimer's disease. Lipitor
0: was the fifth... Uh, lipid lowering treatment that had come to the market. Why well, not? Yeah, I, I worked for Park Davis. That's right. You were there. That's right. Yep. You were part of yep. the acquisition. That's right, Gary.
1: <laughs> I can tell you stories about. I can tell you stories about <laughs> that would probably curl your hair.
0: No, but what, wasn't it true that the um, the analysts that are always correct, as we know, uh, <laughs> when when that drug came to market, they said it was going to be what six hundred million to a billion a year? Wasn't it something like that? The, that was what they said the, when when the acquisition was done, and it ended up doing fourteen or fifteen billion. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it certainly was a blockbuster.
0: (laughs) Now, picking up on that, if we're looking at what CMS is doing now, and obviously I spend, I live in Belgium and I spend a lot of time working on European policy issues, obviously. One of the concerns we have at our firm is this really positions CMS almost like a European style HTA. It really makes them a second validation after the approval. And it really puts them in a situation like um, nice in the UK or Zen in the Netherlands, where they're no longer just accepting de facto what comes out of the regulator. And then they're saying, okay, now we're going to do our own thing.
1: I don't think so in the U S yet, because the ultimate decisions in the U S and it's almost like if you look at other countries and then you look at the PBM industry in the U S and the insurance industry in the U S they kind of serve as the same role doing the evaluation on these drugs based on their value and whether they're affordable. And then they create formularies and utilization criteria that do that. So in the US, what happened with CMS today is a one-off. Will we have something like a HTA in the United States? I don't think in the near future, there is a self-proclaimed group The watchdog, self proclaimed watchdog of the industry called ICER. ICER. But, you know, farmers challenged their methodology over the years. Their methodology is reviewed by payers. I would say it's part of their valuation, but it doesn't necessarily translate into what the ultimate payer decision would be. So it has limited impact to date on ultimate decisions because the payers still have the last say as to. Whatever that coverage policy is going to be, how the drug's going to be used, how what the patient's affordability is, and, and everything else. So I mean, a great case in that was um they did a um ICER review of a product called DePixin. And they said the product was priced very well, almost low. And interesting component of that is that you would think then, okay, the payers say, okay, we'll cover it without requesting rebates.
0: That didn't happen. So when it's, clear,
1: <laughs> when it's too high, they want more rebates. When it's priced right, they want rebates. Yeah, of course. Because still, every drug that's used still is going to be tagged for a rebate guarantee, depending on which category it falls into, whether it's a retail or a specialty drug. Generics is not an issue in the U.S., over 90 percent of drugs that are used in the united states are generic
0: yeah and in fact often the generic prices in the u.s are lower than they are in in europe
1: yeah that was a a note that i made to reinforce too because you said like in the you in the eu drugs are more expensive well it depends on what drugs you're talking about sure because many times generics can be cheaper in the u.s than they are in other countries but um, when you talk about the retail and specialty drugs uh, as I said before, because of how our industry and, and how the supply chain works and all the money that leaks out of the bucket, we have a continuing price increase over time to manage all those supply chain issues and that leaky bucket that brings us to 50%, maybe less sometimes, maybe more sometimes. It brings me to uh, the pharmaceutical industry has been doing transparency reports. There's about eight companies that do transparency reports. Janssen is one that I'm really, really familiar with. And if you look at the Janssen transparency report from 2020, I like to point out to people that people say, oh, drugs are not affordable. Do you know what? For Invokana, the rebate in Medicaid is 100%. Wow. It's in their transparency report. The rebate in Medicare is 72%. Yeah. So that's more than 50%. So when you think about all those averages, you know you can get there pretty quickly.
0: Janssen also does something else where they show the drugs that they give away under compassionate use, and they include that in their transparency reporting too. Well, that
1: that all count that all counts toward your gross to net in the U.S. All this conversation that we're having today, Dwayne, has to do with gross to net. Here's the price, right, which is the top number, and then what's the bottom number? Is the net is what the pharmaceutical manufacturer makes. Everything between that gross to net is what comes out of that bucket, which could be rebates, chargebacks, wholesaler discounts, free goods programs, return goods, coupon programs, all that goes down to the net, which then is the number that the pharmaceutical manufacturer makes.
0: I'd like to pick up on something you were discussing regarding the orphan conditions and that right now, somewhere between 5 and 8% of the available orphan conditions have been developed. Now that is 100% correct. But what's also intriguing is where they lie. And this is somewhat oxymoronic, I know. But the orphan drugs that have been developed are the larger orphan drugs. They're the ones often that live in the population somewhere between one and five and 10,000 incidence rate. The 85% that you mentioned that haven't been developed are often the ones, well, that's where 85% of them are, are in the very small micro orphan, one and one million less. The reality is what we're seeing, particularly if the Pallone bill or some of these bills that are currently being proposed on the Hill, that you know Pallone's bill has a hard stop where you cannot go longer than five years in your confirmatory trial under an accelerated approval if you're under a surrogate endpoint. Now, there is no way on this earth anyone would be able to run a confirmatory trial and have a hard endpoint, an outcomes trial. That would be statistically significant with a micro orphan where your total u.s population is 300 people i just don't see how that's going to work do they understand the implications of what they're saying essentially surrendering and writing off the entire you know availability of 85 percent of the untreated conditions right now most
1: politicians aren't scientists so they don't see and understand the science of incremental value of innovation like i said you don't Like for example, there wasn't a cure for Hep C that came just like oh yeah we have a cure for Hep C. It was all the incremental knowledge that we learn about the disease, about the incremental knowledge about the utilization of drugs, and then the pharmaceutical company can do a better job. But if you take away that learning mechanism for the scientists, I think it's going to hurt the industry. I mean, if you just want an opinion, I think that would hurt the industry. And and you think about these people that have these rare and orphan conditions, and they have no choice they want to try something. They want to try something to remedy their condition.
0: Do we need to make reforms then to the way it's being done now? Because a lot of the criticism is there needs to be more evidence earlier. I think the question is though, if you do have a surrogate endpoint that works, often you won't be able to develop this drug without a surrogate endpoint because you just won't be able to have something to hang a statistic on, you just won't be there. What sort of reforms would you want to make then to the accelerated approval?
1: My opinion is that the FDA, which is a government entity, of course, they are scientists. And I think that we've trusted them for many years. And I think that this accelerated pathway to get drugs in the hands of patients that need them, I think we should leave it to the scientists and not the politicians.
0: Has CMS become politicized then?
1: I wouldn't say CMS. I mean, the accelerated approval is the FDA. Right. So what what happened with CMS is related to CMS paying for it, not the FDA approving it.
0: And this gets back to my other point then about them being an HTA. Are we going to start seeing them making coverage decisions based on costs specifically?
1: That's hard to determine. There is a new pie legislation that just passed the House, which is pre-information exchange, where payers can get their hands on pharmaceutical information even earlier um, when it's submitted to the FDA, um, whether that goes through or not. Because ultimately, it's the FDA's job to determine whether the drug is safe and it works. That's what they do. How it gets paid for then goes into the hands of the rest of the players in the United States. And the payers want more information sooner. So they can start evaluating it, determining what it's gonna cost, whether they can fit it in their budget, how many patients are gonna be used. And the pharma companies, it, that's something that they do too. So think about a rare and orphan disease. Many of the payers are like, can you explain how this, what this disease is again? <laughs> right? they, I mean, you think about it, they have to manage every disease state. Yeah. So when you come to them with a rare and orphan disease, they're like, okay, explain to me, that. how many patients am I gonna see? How much is it gonna cost? Because they need to put they need to plug it into their actuarial science. So I think that the system that we have to date, if we can all start working together on the science and affordability, I think that's kind of the solution that we need.
0: I want to go back to what you pointed out and we were discussing earlier that drugs have consistently been 11, 13, sometimes 14% of GDP. And it's been pretty much rock solid for you know a couple decades now, at least.
1: Boston CMS has been tracking it, 1960.
0: Yeah, exactly. This is a known number. Hospital costs, however, have been going up really, really high. They've been increasing exponentially. And this is also, you can track this and correlate it to a lot of them forming nonprofit trusts. So there seems to be a lot of movement there with hospital consolidation. Why do you think there's so much heat on the drug industry around pricing when the hospitals often get a free pass?
1: I'd like to change some of the language, if it's possible. I would not say that the hospitals have a free pass. The reason I say that is that they work in our industry, they work on the smallest margins of any of the players in healthcare. And we need hospitals. And in addition, once again, share a wallet. If you should need a hospital visit, hospital stay, it's usually acute. So it's like treat and release. Sometimes you may have an extended stay. But ultimately, you're going to be released from the hospital back out into the system. And their job is to fix you and get you back out there. Because of that, there is a lot of scrutiny on the hospitals as far as how they make their money, even though they're very, very, very low margins, the quality measures that they're held accountable to by CMS, who's typically the largest payer inside of of a hospital organization. And then ultimately, it comes down to share wallet it's still not going to be your biggest expenses. So if you think about it, take the general population, everybody pays premiums, you may take drugs, but you have deductibles and out-of-pocket costs. And then you may use the hospital system where then you've treated and released, you finalize your bills and you're like, hopefully I don't have to go back again. But that was hopefully a limited time event in your lifetime that you don't want to repeat too often, if you know what I mean. So I wouldn't say that they got a free pass They they work on the slimmest margins. Their costs continue to go up. A lot of what happens with hospitals, too, is the infrastructure. So treating a lot of the conditions that a hospital would manage requires sometimes large capital equipment purchases. It requires specialized equipment. We have hospitals that specialize in certain areas. Um, I mean, there's just a lot. That's why I say that they're they're on the smallest margins so i think they get the least amount of attention uh attention because you also feel thank goodness they were there when i needed them right <laughs> right? right you know so, so it's like a the good feeling thing whereas when you think about that 100% of the attention on the 10% of the spend why is it the drugs once again it's that comes down to that specific piece that i keep mentioning yeah. is the share of the wallet but it's the media it's the politicians and and people People feel it's so like, yeah, it's the drug companies. It's the drug companies. It's the drug companies where, as you know, if everybody looked into that, our healthcare system, uh, you know, we just spend a lot of money on healthcare.
0: In the US. <laughs> 20% of GDP.
1: It's just a lot of money. No, I, no matter how you slice it, it's a lot of money.
0: I always feel the pharmaceutical industry plays a very good villain, tying the lady to the railroad track. It's funny you
1: say that because that's the picture that tiny kind of gets painted all the time yeah. of the pharmaceutical industry. There was a star ledger came to, uh, Rutgers, and they asked, "Hey, can somebody write an article for us? You know about the vaccine progress for COVID nineteen, and so anything it has to do with healthcare, I'm the first tag <laughs> that, that the media at Rutgers comes after. Like, so Gary, will you write an article for us? And I'm like, okay, so I, you know, what I titled the article,
0: Dwayne. What? So do you like us now?
1: <laughs> Question mark.
0: <laughs> And the answer was no.
1: <laughs> well, actually, our our public opinion, the pharmaceuticals' public opinion actually increased over the COVID. There was a time based on the Harris polls that we were ranked just below tobacco companies, believe it or not, yeah. the pharmaceutical industry. But, you know, today, uh, you know, we're, we're moving up a little bit. But the media and the politicians and, you know, 100% of the noise on the pharmaceutical industry, you certainly get painted with that villain, tag.
0: And going back a little bit here about the hospital cost situation, what also is very interesting, we did a lot of work for the Dutch government on CAR-T. We looked at a European hospital and a U.S. hospital. If you looked at the overhead costs, if you didn't use CAR-T, what was going on in the hospital for stem cell treatments, et cetera, these are very hands-on, highly labor-intensive procedures because you need to have a donor, you have to have two people in the hospital, I mean, and then you have a long recovery time. These are, these are very intensive. There's about a quarter million dollars of overheads on a stem cell treatment. If you looked at what was going on in the European hospitals, the HTA would pass 19,000 euros for all leukemia and say, here you go. Per patient. And it didn't matter if you got a CAR T. It didn't matter if you had a hospital stay. It was just, here you go, 19,000 euros. And that was it. And everything else went on the overheads of the hospital. That's not being captured in any of these HTA assessments that they're doing. That's not being captured in the value assessment of, quote unquote, the drug. When you do a quality i'm I'm concerned that we're heading down that road in the u s. when we're not having an actual understanding of what the real costs are of some of these treatments. Car T, the fundamental problem with Car T as we see it is you're taking that money out of the hospital and handing it to a drug company, and that irritates some people from a, a cost management perspective. The cost accountants don't like it because it looks like a transfer of payment.
1: It's interesting that you use Car T as an example because once again, that is such high level science. And from the initial Car T therapy to where we are today, and the new conditions that we've learned to be able to treat because of CAR T, this is amazing stuff. So let, let's hope we're not going to that world.
0: I hope not. Based on a lot of the work in CAR T, we're finding that the COVID response is a T cell response. Now, would we have known that 20, 30 years ago? Probably not.
1: Yeah, I mean the the what we've learned from the technology to create COVID vaccines in the pharmaceutical industry, not that I'm a scientist, but you know, you're hearing more and more about Um, how that technology is now going to be used in other disease states. And just like CAR-T has been now used in multiple disease states, and and there's been recent approvals that just came out, multiple myeloma. I'm not a scientist, Dwayne, but I'm fascinated by that technology, I have to say. Me too. Think about some of the disease states that we've talked about and how much we've learned and progressed. I mean, I love that you brought up CAR-T because, CAR-T has been around now for for years, but we're still getting new innovations on CAR-T for for new conditions, new oncotypes. And it's like, I mean, it's just, it is amazing. Just amazing how far, but if we didn't learn incrementally, we wouldn't be here at all.
0: I've got one final question for you, Gary. Obviously we've spoken a lot about some of the misperceptions and the issues that are going on with drug pricing and A lot of pressure coming out of the US Congress now. It's a political year. This is one area where there is something of bipartisan support. Drug pricing could be a bludgeon and cudgel that's used coming into November this year, and it does concern me greatly. If you could make one change now, immediately, whether that be congressionally, state level, CMS, what do you think we should do?
1: I find it fascinating that the multiple bills that have been offered up to date have some interesting components in common that are related to affordability. So let's, I always like to go back to the beginning. You ask me why I do this is affordable access to innovative therapies. That's the reason I love to do what I do. So if you think about it, all the bills that exist have one thing in common, making the Part D benefit more affordable to Medicare beneficiaries with an out-of-pocket cap, some $2,000, some $3,200 so that it's a limited exposure to them, you know, uh, eliminating that 5%. They all eliminate the 5%. They shift around who pays for what, having pharma contribute, as well as having the plan sponsors contribute, reducing the overall government exposure, which right now of that, uh, when they reach catastrophic coverage and the beneficiaries paying 5%, the government's picking up 80%. And the plan sponsors picking up 15%. So if you start shifting the numbers around, there's a contribution from pharma, contribution from the plan itself, reducing the government exposure and fixing the patient out of pocket costs. I think that carved that out of all the bills. And now you've addressed the thing that appeals to me the most making drugs affordable to the Part D beneficiaries.
0: Room for compromise in today's climate, Gary?
1: Well, it's interesting because when you talk about bipartisan, It's the things that they agree on, which is the affordability, and then there's the things that they don't agree on, which is controlling drug costs and controlling assessments to other countries. Where they can't meet is when they try to put too many things in one bill. I think compromise, if there is a focus on affordability, I mean, I spoke to the New Jersey Senate Finance Committee also, and they're like, well, we got to do something about drug prices. I said, is it about drug price or is it about affordability? They say, what's about affordability? I said, if you want to improve affordability, you got to start at the bottom and not at the top. Right. Affordability doesn't happen at the top. It happens at the bottom. But everybody's talking about creating bills that address affordability by starting at the top. If the real issue is affordability, let's start at the bottom. And as I mentioned to you before, all the bills that have been proposed are outlined the way I mentioned to you, capping the patients out of pocket costs, Shifting who spends what to make it more affordable for the beneficiary, I think that all the politicians, doesn't matter which side of the aisle on, can agree that helping these Medicare beneficiaries to affordable medications is a good thing to do, regardless of which side of the aisle you sit on.
0: Gary Branning. It's been a fantastic conversation. I wish uh, wish we were together face to face, but I'm sure it's not going to be the last. I look forward to speaking to you and, and thank you very much for your time. really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah,
1: you just picked the topic, Dwayne, and you and I have chit-chat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Gary, have How's a good that day. Sound? Have a good day, sir. Yeah, you do. Yep, take care. Bye-bye. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen Laughlin. This Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2022.